Scripture reading will be from 1 Corinthians, verses 19 through 23. If you're using the Red Pew Bibles, it's on page 957. Page 957. 1 Corinthians 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So usually every summer we have a, or at least in the past couple of years, we've had a intern come, a preaching intern to come and be with us for the summer. And I, I've joked with people and, and really in all seriousness have told people though, that uh, the blessing for me has been that that internship, though I've been involved with John and working with those young, younger men, has, has been really kind of an extended internship for me every summer, an opportunity for me to grow. And though my, my title, my role is associate minister, I have found that time in the summer to be uh, especially helpful for me to continue to grow, but really all year long. And ever since I've been here, I've considered myself to, in many ways, be an intern of John because he's helped me to grow in so many ways. And, and so as I stand here in not my normal spot this evening, I want to bring it to your attention, not for a couple of reasons, not because I'm, standing, I'm not standing here in order to impress you or to bring uh, glory to myself in any way, uh, nor am I standing here because I want to be John, but rather because as I try to grow personally, not only in my, my own Christian walk, but also in what sometimes we say in honing our own craft and, and growing and, and stretching ourselves a little bit. I, I'm planning to stand here this evening with only my Bible in hand, and I'm a little bit more nervous this evening than I, than I normally am, and I know you'll be gracious with me if, if it's not quite as maybe smooth, perhaps, as maybe I am with my notes in hand. And so as I think about this, the reason why we do this isn't because, again, to impress but rather to be servants of God in order to perhaps get ourselves out of the way of the gospel and to be individuals that you don't see us, that rather you see what we're talking about and that we are conversing with you and you're hearing the things that we're saying, uh, perhaps instead of us just maybe reading them from our notes. And so I hope you'll bear with me as I, as I strive for this goal this evening. In Proverbs chapter 11, by the way, we're not completely noteless. I have the PowerPoint screen to help me out. In Proverbs chapter 11 and verse number 30, the Proverbs writer says that he who wins souls is wise. 
that he who wins souls is wise. And this evening, as we've already introduced and laid out the idea of our new program for the rest of 2022 in evangelism in sync, I want us to think about the idea, the analogy, that when we invest in souls, we are taking advantage of a once in a lifetime investment opportunity. A once in a lifetime investment opportunity. As we said, the Proverbs writer says that he who wins souls is wise. And I would submit to you this evening that that is perhaps the wisest thing that we can ever do in terms of evangelism to try to win people over to the gospel, to win people to the cause of Christ and realizing that it is a once in a lifetime investment. Consider with me as you think about this that investing in souls is a once in a lifetime investment opportunity because the soul is the most valuable object of all. It is the most valuable object of all. And in Mark chapter 8 and verse number 36, Jesus asked the question, what shall a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The implication is that there's nothing more valuable in all of the entire world, all the riches, all of the things that anyone could ever aspire to hope to to possess, nothing is more valuable than the soul. And so as you think about that, think about what makes the soul so valuable. What is it that makes a soul so valuable? If you were to be maybe an appraiser of, of, a, of a property, or maybe you're an art appraiser, maybe you go and somehow you look at these paintings that you have no idea what they're actually painted of, but, but you're able to appraise them, right? Because you know something about the art realm. And, and, and so an appraiser might ask a series of questions such as, who painted this painting? Or, or is this the original? What is it actually made out of? They might ask, what is the going price for this painting? Or, or as maybe we mentioned earlier about the house on a housing market, what's the going price for that house on the market? How do we consider uh, maybe looking at the durability of the house? Is it something that is built to last or is it maybe something that's not built with the best strategies and the best engineering structures? And so as you think about these questions that some sort of an appraiser might ask about whether it may be a painting or whether it may be a home, consider these thoughts as we consider the fact that the soul is the most valuable object of all. Consider the soul is the most valuable object of all because of who made it. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 6 and verse 7, we find that God forms the man out of the dust of the dry ground and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of of life. Now, in your biology classes and times, you've, you've seen what the building blocks of life are in the sense that you have seen the cellular level and you, you've noticed that DNA is what, is our, what our bodies are comprised of and that's ultimately the building blocks of life, but no one knows except God what the soul is made of. How to make the soul, if we were to compare it to some sort of, of wonderful uh, newfangled technology that was something that was revolutionary, we would say, patent that right away, we, wouldn't we? We'd say, take advantage of that, take, make it patent pending so that you are the only one that has that kind of design and, and can take advantage of that. Well, I'm here to tell you this evening that God has the patent on making souls And if you think about it, no one else except for God can make souls. And as you think about that, because of who made it, the soul is the most valuable object of all. But also think about the fact 
that it's the most valuable object of all because of what it's made out of. A second ago, we just said, we don't exactly know what the soul is made out of, but we do know, according to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, that God said, let us make man in our image. We are made in the image of God, and there is nothing on the face of earth that it can be compared to our God. And as you think about the fact that we are the supreme of his creation, you and I are the most valuable objects in this world, particularly because we possess souls. We're distinct from the animal world. And as you think about that, the soul being the, made by the, the great God of the universe, but also he, because of what it's made out of, it is so valuable. We consider also, as we said earlier, because no one else has the design. Because no one else has the design. In Psalm 139, verse number 14, the psalmist says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made and that my soul knows very well. I'd suggest that the psalmist is saying something of this nature, that he's saying my soul, my inward being knows that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But for our purposes this evening, it's interesting to think about the fact that our soul especially knows that there is no other entity like it, that there is no one else that has the design of the soul like you and I possess within our inner being. It's the most valuable object of all. Consider in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse number seven with me that the soul is valuable because of its durability. Think about its durability. If you were to compare, as we said earlier about a house, how well is this structure built? If it's looking like it's about to fall over and they used you know, nails instead of screws where they should have used screws, maybe that house was not going to be as valued on the market as it would have been. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse number seven, Solomon says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. The spirit will return to God who gave it. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse number two, we find this written, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Though our bodies will decay and though as you get older you recognize that our bodies become more and more beat up and, and, and torn down, our soul lasts forever. Our soul lasts forever. Now we are promised in eternity that you and I will have a new body. We'll have a resurrection body, that 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 body will never corrupt, it will never fade. But as you think about that which is more durable than our body now that we possess in this moment, that is the soul. So valuable that it, it possesses an almost immortal capability, if you will. But also a soul is valuable because of how much the wealthiest values it. As we said earlier, if perhaps someone's trying to sell a painting and they put it out on the market and the the most acclaimed and the most prestigious art collector out there were to try to purchase or want to purchase that particular painting, you might say that that is the market value for it. Well, as you think about the wealthiest as it's capitalized there, that being God, you and I, as we talked about this morning, recognize that God values our souls so much that he gave his only begotten son. He values our souls that much. And so if he, the most wealthy of all, God of heaven, were to value our souls that much, you and I ought to recognize that our souls have incomparable value. 
because of what it costs on the market. As we said, not only because of who values it, but also because of what it costs on the market. What has it been paid for? How much has, been, how much has, a, has someone paid for a soul in the past? Well, the only other occasion in which someone has paid for someone's soul is in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 28 where we find that Jesus purchased the church. That is, he didn't purchase this building. He purchased the souls of each and every one of us within this congregation, within the church, all out over the world with his own blood. The blood of Jesus, the most valuable, most precious thing of all was used to purchase your soul and mine. That ought to help us to esteem and to value and see how much our souls are worth. Consider finally, turn with me to Ephesians chapter number one. Ephesians chapter number one, what makes a soul so valuable? Because of the potential that it possesses. In Ephesians chapter one, in three different places, Paul, as he's writing to the church at Ephesus, says this phrase, to the praise of his glory. Notice, as we begin reading in verse number five, having predestined us to the adoption uh, of Uh, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did he adopt us? Why did he purchase us back? Why did he pay for our souls with his blood? Why did God create us? So that we might bring praise to him by our lives. So that we might bring glory to him by our lives. Look also at verse number 12, that, he, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. And then verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Why were you and I created? Yes, because God loved us. But our ultimate purpose is so that we can bring glory to God. That's the potential that a soul possesses. And so as we look at investing in souls that are out in the world, as you think about all the things that we could be doing with our time, is not investing in the souls of those that are lost and even within the souls of those others that are saved, investing in all people, investing in souls is the most valuable thing of all because of the glory that it brings to God. By the way, part of the reason why we as Christians believe that it is imperative that we protect the unborn, it's because the unborn have souls, that they have souls even in the womb of their mothers, and that soul possesses potential to bring glory to God, no matter the circumstance in which it was conceived, no matter the circumstance in which it might be born and brought into the world, that soul has the potential to bring glory to God and can bring glory to God. And so we ought to do our best to try to protect all life because the soul is the most valuable object of all. Consider next that investing in souls is something that is a, an, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because the return on that investment is incomparable. The return on that investment is incomparable. Perhaps you follow the stock market or perhaps you, you read up on, you know, maybe you go to Dave Ramsey's website and he's saying invest in this or, or put your money over here. There's no other investment that brings about so much return that can be compared to investing in souls. In Galatians chapter six, verses seven through nine, Paul says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. If we sow to the flesh, we shall of the flesh reap corruption. But if we sow to the spirit, 
we will reap of the Spirit everlasting life. And as we think about that, as we think about that, you and I can bring about so much return on this investment, not because of simply our, our own doing, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but as we plant and as we water, God will give the increase. Consider just a few examples of some return on investing in souls. Number one, as we walk through the book of Acts, you might turn to Acts chapter number eight. Consider, as we'll walk through these chapters here together, that investing in souls brings the name of Jesus to all arenas of life, to all nooks and crannies, to every place in life. In Acts chapter number eight, verse number 27, we're introduced to someone that you and I most commonly know as the Ethiopian eunuch. But I would submit to you this, this evening, let's stop using the name Ethiopian eunuch and call him maybe the Ethiopian nobleman. Because in verse number 27, we find that this man had all authority in the house of Candace to the point that he was over all the treasury. He was a nobleman. He was on a mission to go to Jerusalem to worship. He wasn't someone to look down, be looked down upon because of what he lacked, but, also, but to, be, uh, to be admired because of the position that he was in. And as he was making his way on whatever road he was on, Philip comes and he preaches to him the gospel. Philip invests in his soul. And the name of Jesus is brought to Ethiopia where Candace was queen. In Acts chapter number nine, we find a man who was a mercenary, a terrorist, Saul of Tarsus. A man who was breathing out threats, Acts chapter nine and verse number one against the church. And yet, as we think about Ananias investing in his soul, he brought the name of Jesus to even a mercenary, even a terrorist. In Acts chapter 18 and verse number eight, we're introduced to a man named Crispus, who was the ruler of a synagogue. A ruler of a synagogue. Can you imagine today, if you and I were to invest in the souls of someone that is the ruler of some congregation of the Muslim faith? If you and I were to invest in a soul that was a ruler of someone in, that was a ruler in, in the Hindu faith or, or whatever other faith that you can think of, the name of Jesus, when we invest in souls such as that, if we believe that the word of God can transform and change people's lives, it can even go into those places. It did in Acts chapter 18 and verse number eight and with a man named Crispus. In chapter 19, verses 11 through 20, we find that there were some magicians who had a sleight of hand. They were performing these magic tricks, if you will, before others, and they had these books. And when they learned about Jesus, you know what happened? They brought their books before them and they burned them. When we invest in souls, do you not believe that no matter whether you go to the White House or whether you go to someone's house where inappropriate things are happening, that the gospel can change that person's life if we'll just invest in their souls? Philippians chapter four, verse 22, we find that Paul says that those of the house of Caesar greeted them, even in the highest place of the land. Consider though next that the return on investment is incomparable because it forever changes the course of a family's history. In Acts chapter 16, turn there with me and see what is said. In Acts chapter number 16, we find that Paul is in the house of Lydia and he's investing in her soul 
to teach her the gospel. But notice what's said in Acts chapter 16, verse 15, and then later on with the jailer in verse number 33. And then as we already mentioned in Acts chapter 18 and verse number eight about the, about the household of Crispus, notice Acts chapter 16 and verse number 15. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. The household of Lydia was changed forever. The course of history for the family of Lydia was changed forever. And so it was also for the Philippian jailer. So it was also for Crispus. The household obeyed the gospel. All of the family obeyed the gospel, followed after Jesus. And do you know that if we'll invest in souls, that very often the very most next fertile soil is the person next to that person that you just talked to about Jesus, the person they have a relationship with. And not only that, but we have, as we think about this return on investment, ultimately down the road, their children hopefully also will be taught the gospel and their children's children and their children's children. The return on investment on one soul can be so incomparable We'll talk more about that later on in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 2, but just inventorying that in your mind, that if you'll just teach one person the gospel, that return on that investment can be just incomparable. It strengthens the confidence of the church. In Acts chapter 14 and verse number 27, we find that Paul returns from his missionary journey to Antioch. And there in verse number 27, he recounts to them what the Lord had done with them and how the Lord had opened to the Gentiles the door of faith. It's the first example that we have of a mission report. Perhaps you've, you've sat in on one of those where somebody comes back from a missionary work and they tell you about all that had taken place. Does it not bring you encouragement? Does it not build you up to learn about what's taking place out in the mission field? But I would also submit to you this evening, not just in the mission field outside of Katy, Texas, but here in this congregation, as you see new Christians added to the church here regularly, does it not build your confidence up? Does it not encourage you? Does it not edify you and want you, make, help, uh, make you want to, to go out and invest in souls even more? And so it builds our confidence up when we invest in souls. It pays dividends with compounding interest. As we mentioned a second ago in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 2, Paul says, the things that I have taught you among many faithful witnesses teach other men so that they might be able to teach others also. Just like we said with changing the course of a family's history forever, if you teach someone else, eventually they have an opportunity to teach someone else themselves. And it's just like this debt snowball like that Dave Ramsey talks about, right? Ultimately, eventually, we'll just have so many people involved in the work investing in other people's souls that the snowball is rolling and rolling and rolling and become like those in Acts chapter 17 of Jason's household, turning the world upside down. It adds to the number of voices in heaven. When we invest in souls, consider what is said in Revelation. Revelation chapter number seven. When we find the worship that is taking place in heaven. In Revelation chapter seven, beginning in verse number nine. After these things, John said, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb 
clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Can you imagine being in that scene? When we invest in other people's souls, we add to the number of voices that are singing and praying and praising God with those words. The return on that investment when we invest in people's souls is incomparable. Consider finally this evening that when we invest in souls, we are taking advantage of a once in a lifetime investment opportunity because it's really not just a once in a lifetime investment, but a once in an eternity opportunity a once in an eternity opportunity. In Hebrews chapter nine and verse number 27, the Hebrews writer says, for it is appointed to man once to die and then the judgment, then the judgment. As you think about Luke chapter number 16, we find the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And in Luke chapter number 16, you recall that as the rich man is in torment, Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man looks across the great gulf that is fixed between them and he asks, can you please send Lazarus here to just give me a drop of water? But in verse 26, Abraham's answer was this. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. Later on, he asks, will you please just at least send him to my brethren so that they can know about the afterlife, about what's coming, about the judgment that is due to them. But once a soul reaches eternity, the opportunity that was a once in a lifetime, a once in an eternity opportunity, it's gone. It's no longer at our disposal. So that loved one, that friend, that family member, that husband or wife, that son or daughter, that you haven't maybe taken that initiative, that step to invest in their soul, as much as you maybe ought to have, remember that if we don't invest in their souls now, that opportunity is gone forever and eternity because it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. But on the flip side of that, there is hope. In James chapter five, verses number 19 through 20, we have this encouraging reminder from James. He says, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What other arena of life can you take that which is worthless and just by teaching them the gospel and investing in their soul, take it and give it that which is just incomparable in worth, that is eternal life. While the world stands, we have the opportunity to flip the script and give them, as we think about this once in an eternity investment, the investment that will never depreciate. An investment that will never depreciate, a return on that investment that will never depreciate. In Luke chapter 12, verses 32 and through 34, Jesus talks about the fact that if we lay up our treasures in heaven, that no thief will come, no moth will destroy, that you and I will have an inheritance that fades not away, that could never be destroyed, 
There's no investment that we could ever make in this life that could ever compare to the durability and the lasting nature of the inheritance that you and I receive. As we conclude, I want us to think about the fact that as we thought about from our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians chapter number nine, that there is no investment that is worthwhile that doesn't cost us something, that doesn't cost us something. Part of why I'm standing here is to push myself out of my comfort zone. Part of why we're asking you all to be involved in ourselves as well in evangelism and sync is to push all of us out of our comfort zones. And sometimes we have to become to other people what's maybe a little bit uncomfortable for us. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 22 and 23, Paul says, to the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. I ask you this evening as we embark upon this evangelism and sync program, are you willing to invest in other souls? Maybe you haven't done that to the degree that you would like and maybe you have questions, go see our resource center, come talk to John or I or KJ or any one of us that are maybe involved in the Pathfinders program, how you might wanna get involved in that so that you can learn how to teach others the gospel and investing in their souls to the glory of God. If there's anything that we can do for you this evening, we ask that you come as together we stand and as we sing.